The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. How compassionate a listener is by just watching video recordings of listeners and speakers where one person is talking about their own stress or suffering, the other person is listening. You turn the sound off. People just watch the listener. And people are pretty unanimous about what compassion looks like when you're listening. And number one is approach orientation of the body. So rather than like, yeah, I'm interested in your suffering, there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a sense of turning toward and leaning in. So you're, you're doing that now, which is actually, you may find it, it actually helps you connect. So we're embodying something that may actually support the listening process. Number two, attention. Uh, one of the things that really communicates compassionate listening and helps us find our own compassion is non-aggressive eye contact. I think if you're listening with your whole body, you don't need to stare into somebody's soul, which may be uncomfortable for the person who's speaking. So when you're thinking about your eye contact, I want you to think about being generous with your full attention. You're listening with your ears. You're listening with your posture. And you can be very... Um, you can be very kind with your eye contact, that the person knows you're listening, but they also don't feel like they are being, you know? Okay. (laughs) So that's the attention part. And then finally, I invite you, this is with your mind, because you won't be talking. We know you won't be, you know, evaluating, judging, interrogating verbally. But I also want you to invite you to have this attitude of listening with the desire to actually understand what the person is sharing. That's really the full intention here is to understand both what's said and what is unsaid, to try to have that sense of resonance and connection. Okay, So uh, I think there are some groups that are not exactly four, which means I'm going to check in and we may go a little bit more than four rounds. If there are fewer people in the group, you just get to sit and breathe while others continue. Who doesn't want more time to sit and breathe? Yeah, I'm going to really encourage you not to now, you know, shift gears to talking about the weather. So when your group is done, you sit together and breathe. Okay. So somebody who typically does not volunteer to go first in settings like this, put your hand in the air. In your own group, in every group, in every group, this is going to happen. Every group, every group. Okay. Hopefully, did you guys get that back there? Nope. All right. Somebody who doesn't always volunteer to go first, put your hand in the air. Right. Okay. Now, one of them, whoever got their hand up first, that person is talking first. And we will go clockwise from that person. Does that make sense? We know clockwise. Great. Okay. So now we know who's first, who's second, who's third, who's fourth. (laughs) Everybody... Close your eyes or drop your gaze and connect to your own breath. The person who is going to be sharing in a couple of seconds, I want you to remember what your expression is, that statement. Feel free to say it once or say it twice or say it three times or say it and elaborate on it. And when you're done or when you hear the bell ring, We'll come back to this place of silence. Those of you who are going to be listening, connect to your own breath and drop your own story for the moment.
Okay, now everyone open their eyes and listeners begin to share your full attention with person number one who will begin when they're ready. Close or the gaze drop for a moment and we'll conclude this practice with a practice of holding opposites. So you may have heard and you may have shared some things that have some vulnerability to them. And I invite you to see if you can breathe in and be with the emotional tone of that rawness or that vulnerability. There's an emotional tone or a sensation of having shared that or having heard that. I want you to actually have a sense of breathing with that, making room for that. And at the same time, in the sharing, there were acts of courage and generosity. And you may have experienced a sensation of connection or compassion for a fear of compassion. And if any of that was present, I invite you to bring that into your awareness as well. So both at once, making room for any sense of vulnerability or rawness. The same time, making room for the experience of courage and connection. and open your eyes again and and share your attention one last time with your group I invite you to thank them for listening and for sharing Hmm. all right so either find a better if someone stands up too long you can steal their seat no just kidding so um There's one other guideline now that we're going to introduce, having done some sharing. I see people running for the restroom. Okay. Having done some sharing now, the last guideline is what was shared stays in that circle. And I don't, and so, um, so like if during our break, you know, you see that person hanging out there, this is not the time to go up and be like, what you said was so cool. That just resonated with me. Or, you know, my therapist has talked to me about that issue and I have some, or... I am a therapist. Let me give you my card. No, no. That was a closed circle now and it's done. Yeah. And even be mindful. Sometimes we go to workshops like this and we go home and we want to share what we experience with others. And sometimes we do that by telling stories about other people instead of ourselves. Even that I'm going to suggest this. We close the circle. And even if you think about going home and telling people about what you experience, that it be from direct experience. Okay. So um, we, there will be other exercises where we really debrief it together. But what I want to do right now is actually shift to the first science part, a little science break. So are any of these people in the room? I should ask since this is a local group. No, okay. <laughs> this, oh, yes. Um, does anyone have a gray Corolla that's parked right across the street because the police are about to tow it and they're giving you a chance to move it? Thank you. 
That that was compassionate. That was good. Skillful means get the car out of there. All right. So these are images from uh, a study that I was part of um, where we we looked at whether the eight-week compassion cultivation training uh, at Stanford University that we're doing small tasters from today whether that actually helps transform people's fears of compassion. Something I didn't mention before we dived into that exercise is that uh, very high levels of fears of compassion, you know, people who agree with a lot of those statements that I showed you, that that's associated with depression and anxiety, fears of happiness and stress. Not sure which one causes the other. It could be that Fearing compassion actually shuts us down from many of the, the positive experiences that would support our mental well-being. could be that sometimes when we're suffering, it actually is the hardest to open our hearts to suffering. But either way, to actually address fears of compassion is itself a very important process. Not to like be like, all right, just forget those fears. Let's march on to compassion. See, the process of exploring them seems to be a very important um, part of the benefits of exploring compassion. So I wanted to show you the results of this first study we did, which was a, um, it was a randomized controlled study where the control group was a waitlist group. They weren't getting any training at all, but the people who were randomized, it was actually was nine weeks at that time. It was a nine-week training, and we had 60 folks exploring compassion through a very similar process to what we're doing today, except without PowerPoint slides. And uh, here's what we found. So percent improvement doesn't mean we increase their fears. It means we decrease their fears. So you're looking at here, and I'll get short, for those of you who can't see with me standing up, you're looking at the fear of compassion for others, right? The sense that people will exploit me if I'm too compassionate, or there are people who don't deserve compassion. And we saw about an average 40% reduction in people agreeing with that, with those items, fully endorsing them. Uh, a reduction in the fear of compassion from others. And that was a smaller effect, about 15%, which actually motivated us to talk more about that now when we saw that that was not moving quite as much. But still a significant decrease in, in feeling embarrassed or guilty or nervous when other people show us compassion or a fear of, of not wanting to depend on that compassion. And then finally, fear of compassion for self, the sense that self-compassion will make us weak, that we won't be able to get everything done that we want to get done, or that we'll be overwhelmed by our own suffering if we bring compassion to it. That also decreased about 30%. And one of the things that I found so encouraging uh, is this number up here, if you see at the top, a correlation of 0.24 with home practice time. So to the degree that people were going home and doing the practices, the meditation practices that we're doing here, like the breath focus, and then our next meditation will be a compassion meditation, the degree that people went home and did this was positively correlated with this transformation over time. And the reason that I really love that finding is because um, I think it, it, it demonstrates that our willingness to connect with our own barriers to compassion is really the process by which we find freedom from that suffering. So as we go through the practice of meditating today, I want to really encourage you that often the direct experience is, this is hard, it's not what I expected, and at the same time, it's exactly what is needed. Yes. Oh, it was those items that I showed you. The, that was, those were scale items. So the ones that I went through and asked you to find ones that resonated. 
So the, the first set was fear of compassion for others. The second set was receiving from, and the third set was the self-compassion. So it was, it was the direct endorsement of the items that I shared with you. Not endorsing them quite as much. I mean, one of the interests of the question is, does that mean after the training they don't have those fears anymore? They No. You know, it's like anything else. What happens is we start to get a little bit of room around them. So I may still notice that I get anxious when other people are showing me compassion, but it doesn't feel so thick. It doesn't feel so rigid, and therefore on a scale, I might endorse it a little bit less. And that's the change that we're looking at. Yeah, you know, if you're interested, I'll give you a link to the full scale. Okay, so we're going to do one more practice before we move on to the next barrier for compassion. And uh, this is a self-reflection within a meditation practice. So I'm going to be asking you why you want to cultivate compassion. I presume you do because you're here. But if you don't, that's okay also. You could still ask the question, why might I at some point want to cultivate compassion? And what resistance are you willing to explore through the process of cultivating compassion? And this may be the same resistance that you shared in your small group. And then we're going to see if we can bring both into the same spacious container. So I'm going to ask you to go back and forth in your own attention between these two and practice that fundamental skill of holding the opposites in your own mind when it comes to compassion. We're going to try to hold both the barrier and our own desire and willingness at the same time. It's going to be a pretty short meditation, but it's actually something that that will end up being very helpful in every meditation that we do. So with this in mind, go ahead and come back into what feels like your mountain stance or seat. So you can stay seated, or you can stand up and sit down again as is needed. But make a choice that feels stable and steady. Maybe you sense your feet on the ground if you're sitting in a chair. Maybe you make a choice to actually spread the flesh on your buttocks so that you can feel your sits bones. Don't don't spread them while you're standing. That's just obscene. (laughs) Okay, so you're sitting. Go ahead and have a seat. If you aren't already sitting, go ahead and have your seat for this meditation. And then either close your eyes or drop your gaze. And find that quality of the sky, of the breath. So draw your attention to your own breathing. Sense the expansive quality of the breath. And now let's find that quality of the heart, actually both qualities of the heart. I'd like you to bring to mind a reason that you would like to explore cultivating compassion. And if you aren't sure, you might just repeat that question in your own mind. And if you are able to feel something like an intention or a willingness or a clarity, 
I invite you to turn to your body and see if there is a sensation associated with recognizing this intention. What does this intention feel like in your body? Now bring your awareness back to the quality of the breath, literally sensing the flow. And I invite you to bring to mind either a resistance that you are interested in exploring, or perhaps there's a particular suffering that you feel some edge around that you are interested in bringing your compassion to. And if you can find that edge or that resistance, see if there is a sensation in your body. And then bring your awareness back to the breath. And for a few breaths, I invite you to imagine you could breathe in your own willingness, intention, or desire. The sensation or the idea of it. Breathe in your own willingness and intention. And for a few breaths, imagine that you could breathe in the quality of resistance or suffering. I invite you to imagine that you could actually choose to breathe in those sensations or that awareness. And we'll conclude this practice by finding a quality of attention and heart that is big enough to contain both at the same time. Can you sense or be aware of both your own desire to broaden compassion and any resistance or suffering that might be present?
beginning to open your awareness back to the space around you. And we're going to stay in silence for about a minute in case anyone wanted to pause with or take notes about anything that stands out to you about that practice. If you're good, just stay where you are. Breathe with a sense of now open awareness to the space around you. One of the things that I love about compassion trainings is people are too embarrassed to give dirty looks when cell phones go off. Let's stay with that, with your technology. It's good, just breathe. So I want to, um, I want to and actually, those of you who are standing, if you're willing to take a seat so that I can see folks, um, I want to remind you or tell you that this is being recorded, not the, not the individual groups. When you were talking in small groups, that was not being recorded. Um, But these full group conversations will be recorded and I hear put online somewhere. Now, you're not mic'd, so you may not even be picked up at all. But as we do these full groups, know that the content, I may be repeating it so everyone can hear it. And just keep that in mind, you know, what you say if if you are willing for that to then go out to an audience bigger than who's here, or maybe not. So I would like to know how that practice, that last practice was for you, the attempt to hold in your awareness at the same time both a desire to broaden compassion and awareness of resistance or suffering, what that experience was like to try to be that spacious container. What stood out to you? Yes, and say it loud. It was conflicting. No, okay. (laughs) What? Couldn't possibly be designed that way. Do you want to say a little more about that? It was conflicting. Good, thank you. Sorry. Great. Okay. So I'm just going to repeat that. I don't know the whole microphone running around the room. I don't know if that'll totally work. Um, but it'll, it'll, it'll encourage you guys to stay brief, knowing I'm going to be repeating everything. So this is the awareness that you kind of want this. And also, you have some skepticism about just how much, right? There, there may be limits to what is actually going to be helpful in terms of, you specifically said, self-compassion. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you were aware of both at the same time. And was there a part of your mind that could kind of be with both at the same time and not freak out about the fact that they were both present? Yes. Yes. Great. Victory. Thank you for sharing. That was the practice. What else stands out to you about that practice? Yes. I was really interested in the physical sensation. Yes. So this is physical sensations we're interested in. Great. So bringing awareness to sensations of wanting to cultivate compassion and you sense warmth around your heart. Yeah. Did others feel something around? Yeah. Okay. But and? I thought it was a resistance. I felt like, literally, there was like a little bit of an 
Great. So this is the observation that there was a fullness and warmth of the heart when focusing on the intention, and then an, like an edge like that, you didn't have full access to that quality when you brought to mind resistance. And, uh, and when you tried to hold them both at the same time, it felt somewhere in between the two. Yeah, so this is, anyone else have that experience? So one of the things that I really love about this type of practice is that it's a practice of actually expanding more when we bring in something that triggers a sensation of contraction. So this is like a baby version of a, a bigger practice. Some of you might be familiar with the practice of Tonglen, where we try to get very, very spacious and actually open towards enormous amounts of suffering we might typically want to keep at bay and protect ourselves from. So part of what this practice is, and we're going to be doing, again, we're going to bring this quality into some other meditation practices. The idea is that when you notice that shutting down or something else arising that doesn't feel like that fullness of the heart or the expansiveness uh, that allows you to lean in, that your job is to go back to that quality of expansiveness and warmth and invite the quality of resistance or the sensations into that. So it would be a nice challenge. Now, you had a question or observation, comment. Yeah, well, uh, observation mm-hmm. uh, to the yeah. question you asked uh, Great. the two. So um, um, oh, yeah. Um, so I, I, I wanted to cultivate uh, compassion mm-hmm. because of a strong sense of how I'm limited by the lack of it. Um, uh, that was my thought. And then you asked about um, how does that feel when mm-hmm. uh, I forget what, how you, what your question was, but what comes up mm-hmm. and what came up immediately was fear. Yes. Um, of the compassion. Yes. And um, my reflection on that was uh, that I want to, um, I want to um, develop the compassion specifically because of the fear. That's yeah. where yeah. there's something to learn. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm so glad you, you know you. So that's a very brave thing to say, and I, I want to actually particularly highlight how valuable it is. So we had a sharing where the the sensation of intention to cultivate compassion was what we typically associate with compassion, warmth around the heart. And some folks, sometimes we hear that and we think, well, the experience I had was shutting down, freaking out, or fear, right, or, or other things like that. And it's so important to acknowledge and name the diversity of experiences we have um, as really an act of compassion for ourselves. So this is, this is exactly the, um, the process that I think actually allows us to cultivate compassion toward the fear that then transforms the fear. Yes. Do you want to pass the mic down? Thank you very much. Self-compassion. Yeah. Brings me self-compassion brings me in touch with my loneliness. Yes. Yeah. And that's hard. Yeah. And is there a part of you that can be with how hard that is? Yes. Yeah. Great. Thank you. It's a gift.
Yes. Uh, I too felt a lot for the physicality of it. We yeah. Spoke of, um, I, again, with I think I speak loud enough. <laughs> well, go ahead and okay. give her the mic. We'll... Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, anyway, I, I, it was very easy for me to feel that in my heart, and then the resistance I felt very much in in my abdomen and. And I could feel them at the same time, and it made me realize that perhaps I am thinking about these things and that, that those physical feelings, like going down the road in, in the future, will actually, if I could put more thought into that, you know, and, and pay attention to that, that that would bring it back to my mind to be able to, if that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah. So this observation that you can actually use sensations in real life when confronted with suffering or with our own resistance this is such a key insight, and I, you know, I wasn't going to show you some of these studies, but there's some interesting research suggesting that the ability to turn toward your physical sensations yeah. can actually be a key distinction between compassion and not compassion, whether it's anxiety, overwhelm, self-criticism. Mm-hmm. So we're going to continue to explore this process of are you willing to turn toward sensation and when sensations arise, even if they are like gut sensations of resistance or heart sensations of fear that uh, turning toward those sensations actually transforms how much control they have over us. Yeah. Okay, we are gonna, we're going to move on. Thank you very much for sharing. I want to, oh, and we did that. We embodied it and we embraced it. I want to turn to the question of uh, competing responses that come up when we experience awareness of suffering. We're going to talk about it a little bit, then we're going to take our break. We're going to come back and do our next uh, sort of prolonged meditation practice, which will be practice of compassion and loving kindness for any one of your choice that you would like to experience compassion and loving kindness for. Um, But we're going to begin now, but this is like a little tiny exercise, not a full meditation. I invite you to drop your gaze or close your eyes and just see if you can touch. Just touch in. Don't drown in it. Just touch in. I want you to bring to mind someone you care about, a pet, a human, and it doesn't have to be any particular relationship, a friend, a coworker, a family member, a partner, a child, a relative, anyone you care about and whoever comes up to mind, even if it's a squirrel who lives in a tree near you, it's fine. And as you bring this, we'll call this the friend or loved one, as you bring this friend or loved one to mind, I want you to imagine being with them, maybe a specific memory, or just imagine them with you right now. And notice how this makes you feel. And now, I invite you to remember or imagine a time when this friend or loved one was suffering in some way. Maybe they were sick or angry or scared or sad. Notice how you feel when you think of this suffering.
Now go ahead and open your awareness back to the space around you. So that was not a meditation, right? Just a little touch in. I invite words or brief phrases. We don't need a mic for this. Just call it out. Words or brief phrases that describe how it felt to bring to mind the suffering of a friend or loved one. Difficult fear, sadness, anger, hurt, sorrow, closing down, helplessness. Oh, this sounds great. Give me more of this. Anything else? Concern? Desolation, love, cold. Any other physical sensations? Think tightness of the chest. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Oh, very interesting. A little bit of narcissism shows up. Tightness of the back. In the back, tears. Yes. Anyone else in the back? Because I know you're here. I know you feel like you're a little bit, but I know you're here. Say it again. Support. Anything else back there? Resentment. Great. Okay. Thank you for demonstrating that when we are aware of suffering, there's a very wide range of responses we can have that may or may not uh, include that wonderful process model of compassion that I shared with you. Awareness of suffering, a little bit of a sense of distress, but just lots of care and concern and love that motivates us to, to act skillfully to relieve suffering. And Science actually has a lot to say about this process. Uh, And I think one of the first things that's really helpful to recognize when we start to explore compassion is that compassion is one of really two competing instincts for when we are aware of suffering of a loved one or a friend. That we have this other kind of caregiving, close bond instinct that often triggers what... um, This is from a paper by researchers at Berkeley... Uh, who call it empathic distress, but you could call it sympathetic distress or just like freaking out and falling apart when you are aware of a loved one in pain or suffering in some way. That that is a natural instinct to feel like a dagger is in your heart, to feel overwhelmed because you don't want your friend or loved one to suffer. And maybe it makes us resentful or maybe it makes us afraid or maybe it makes us want to shut down. And that this is, this is a very... Um, very real instinct that competes with what we often think of as being the more ideal instinct of just being aware of suffering and feeling warmth and tenderness and being able to act skillfully rather than shutting down or getting angry or falling apart. And one of the things that, um, that the researchers at Berkeley highlight that I think is really helpful when we are considering the value of cultivating compassion is that empathic distress competes with compassion as a response to suffering, as a signal to the person who is suffering that we ourselves are in need of compassion now. That our own empathic distress, when we start crying, when we start panicking, when we start shutting down, that it's a way to elicit social support and care from the person who's suffering. It's for ourselves, a little bit narcissistic, right? It's, it's for ourselves that now we have made this suffering, we sort of changed the tables and we have now taken in the suffering to the degree that we are the one in need of support and help. And that when we respond to suffering from this point of view, that it actually, um, to the person who is truly suffering before it became our suffering, that that's a very difficult place to put that person in who now is trying to tell you about a diagnosis or a difficult relationship or something like that. And now suddenly there's this giant wall or barrier and it's my job to console 
right? This empathic distress really gets in the way of our ability to offer support and to, um, and to act skillfully. So one of the reasons that we cultivate compassion is so that we know what to do when this shows up, that we recognize it's completely natural. And often the more you care, the more this is the case, that it, it's often evidence of our own connection and love. And that compassion is different from that love, that, that love can lead us in directions that don't always allow us to relieve suffering. So I wanted to show you some pictures of what's going on in the brain that uh, researchers have found distinguish compassion from em- uh, empathic distress that would lead us to not be able to act as skillfully. So I'm showing you, these are, by the way, if you're not all brain people, these are three pictures of the brain in the same orientation. So I'll move away in a second, but imagine me standing this way. So you're getting a side view of the brain, and the forehead is here on all of these, and uh, you're looking into the middle of the brain and a little more the side of the brain in the, that middle slide here. So the first area of the brain that seems to become really important for the experience of compassion rather than other responses is a system of the brain associated with your sense of self. That is, you need to recognize some kind of uh, self-relevance or connection in the other who is suffering. If you don't, often we just feel nothing at all, or maybe we feel angry or irritated or schadenfreude, where we're happy to see that person suffering. Right? So we need to actually see ourselves in the one who is suffering. Now, this is where we could go off into empathic distress because we can see ourselves so strongly that it's like looking in a mirror and suddenly it's our suffering now. So we need to see ourselves in the one who is suffering, but we also importantly need to have a sense of that the self is not uh, the one who is suffering. So there's recognition of self without over-identification. And when that happens, we, it gives rise to an emotional response. And you're looking at areas of the brain in here, inclu- <laughs> including the insula, which is an area of the brain that gives you access to the embodiment as- uh, aspect of your emotions. So you understand that my heart is doing this, and it means something. My stomach is doing this, and it means something that it's the part of the brain that is really listening to your body and understanding the emotional tone of what's going on in your body. And that seems to be a really important basis for a sense of care and concern and the desire to give care. Also, the same region of the brain, the stress response, right? That's totally part of compassion, that you feel a kind of heightened urgency and your attention gets a little bit narrowed to the suffering, right? So like, okay, this is what really matters. I'm now going to orient towards and I'm going to pay attention. So there's this mixture of distress as well as care and love. And then the area of the brain that seems to really distinguish compassion from sympathetic or empathetic distress is uh, a a system in the brain that starts in the midbrain and then goes to your frontal cortex and your motor cortex that is sometimes referred to as the reward system of the brain. This is the system of the brain that makes you approach something you want. So if I had chocolate in the room and you're all like, chocolate and you find yourself like you don't even know how it's happening, but your hand is reaching for the chocolate. You don't have to think about it. You just instinctively approach and lean in and move toward. This system of the brain, when it becomes activated, is that, that, sort of, that missing component in empathic distress that really transforms it into compassion, the desire to approach rather than protect oneself from or escape. 
And again, it's the same system of the brain that makes you want to buy something or drink something or hug someone. It's literally approach motivation. And several studies, different research groups have found that if you compare sadness or grief or distress to people reporting actual compassion, that this is the, the missing link. It's this desire to approach rather than lean back and escape. And I find it very helpful to see some of this brain imaging research because I can often recognize myself at sort of different parts of this process model. And that often when I'm feeling myself in empathic distress, that I need to really touch in with each one of these. And sometimes it means tuning into the body. And often it means choosing to lean into what I'm feeling because even if it's your own distress that you decide to embrace and approach, you're actually bringing in that quality of approach and acceptance and moving toward that allows you to do the same for whatever the actual suffering is. So uh, one other thing, and then we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to do a practice that allows you to do that for the suffering of your friend or loved one. So the other thing that really distinguishes uh, distress from compassion is whether your body is pushing off into a kind of fight-or-flight response or a, um, a more calm uh, caregiving response, and not caregiving like, oh, my God, I have to protect them from their suffering, but that kind of, you know, the ability that allows you to be calm and present even when the other one may not be able to, the one who is suffering. So an example of this is just looking at a very specific nerve, the vagus nerve, that innervates the heart and slows it down when you're experiencing compassion. And some of you may have had this experience when you thought of a loved one suffering, the heart rate sped up. Did anyone have that experience? Yeah. So in a compassionate response, often what happens is the heart rate speeds up. That's that initial recognition of suffering. And what allows it to unfold as compassion is somehow the nervous system says, all right, let's stay calm so that we can stay present and engaged so that we do not have to flee or fight, but we can actually be directly involved here. And the heart starts to slow down and the breathing tends to slow down too. And there's a synchronization between breathing and heart rate. And again, this sometimes happens spontaneously, but we can choose to make it happen by awareness of our own body and breath. So when we come back from the break, what we're going to do is very simple breathing exercise to help us choose a state like this of the body. And then we'll go through a formal compassion meditation practice that encourages you to do the following things. Um, oh, I was going to tell you about a study. I'm, I need to give you guys a break first. I think what we're going to do is do the practice first, and then I'll tell you about the study. I might as well not bias you, right? Okay, so it is, my clock says it's 3.03. So we are going to take, is, is 10 minutes sufficient? What usually happens in this place?